Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Welcome to our podcast, The Mississippi Arts Hour, Legacies of the Great Migration. I'm Monique Davis, Chief Equity and Inclusion Officer and Director of the Center for Art and Public Exchange at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This limited series podcast explores how food, music, and literature in the U.S. evolved due to the Great Migration. I speak with authors, chefs, and musicians, all with ties to our state. On April 9th, MMA will open A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration. This exhibit asked 12 artists to trace their personal stories through the Great Migration and explore their families' connections to the South. We hope listeners realize the importance this historical phenomenon had and continues to have on many cultural aspects of our country. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, I speak with Mississippi authors Ralph Eubanks and Kiese Lehman. Born in Mount Olive and a graduate of Old Miss, Ralph's books explore our state's landscape and history. Kiese is a Jackson native whose writing focuses on race and family. In this incredibly open and vulnerable conversation, both authors share family stories, what keeps them connected to Mississippi, and what effect our special state has had on their writing. just really excited to get to dig into this great migration topic with you. So I guess we'll just go ahead and get started. Um, and so in deference to the, I don't know, the wiser person among the two of you, <laughs> <laughs> Ralph, I'll start with you and ask you to tell us a little bit about your family's migration story. Um and did your family stay in Mississippi or move elsewhere or a little bit of both? It's a little bit of both because um, I have a, an odd migration story in that my family migrated from South Alabama. I tell people my family's from L.A., lower Alabama, <laughs> and moved to the Mississippi Delta. My dad moved to the Mississippi Delta in 1949 after he graduated from Tuskegee. Uh, my mom came Three years later, when they married, uh, they lived in the Delta till 1956 and then moved to South Mississippi. So things were, you know, it was that period in the Delta when it was open season on black folks. So this is mm. just six months after the Emmett Till trial. Things yeah. were really heated. As I've been looking at the circumstances in Holmes County at the time, there was also the dissolution of Providence Farm. Uh, so my father was working as a county agent there. So that led to my family's leaving the Delta in 1956. So we stayed in Mississippi um, and moved to the town of Mount Olive. And when I was in high school, moved to Chickasaw County. Um, my dad took a job there. 
but the next generation of us have all ended up in the Northeast, um, in around Washington D.C., in Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. So it's the first generation really stayed in the South. The Great Migration generation stayed in the South, mm. but the next generation left the South. Uh, and I think there's a pattern there for a lot of black families is that that first generation of college educated stayed in the South to create change in the South. The mm-hmm. next generation then decided it was time to leave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Kia, say how about you? What was your story? Uh, yeah, my great uh, on my mother's side, and, and th- those are the folks that, that raised me. My great grandmother um, was born in Scott County, and uh, she had my grandmother in 1929, um, and my grandmother was the only child um, in her family of, well, of in her immediate family of six to stay in Mississippi. Um, her her birth mother, her birth father, her brothers and sisters left um, and went to uh, Racine, uh, Milwaukee, Chicago, and Indianapolis. Um, my grandmother, as a young person, did not want to leave. Um, so she stayed with this woman named Mama Lar. I mean, Mama Mama Rose, who I always thought was my, my real grandmother. Then I found out when I was like 35 or something that Mama Rose wasn't my real grandmother. But um, so she has my, my, gra- my grandmother stayed in Scott County. She had three, three, uh, three girls and one boy. Um, she was not able to finish high school. She finished high school through correspondence courses later, but she was very big on education. So she sent all three of her girls to Jackson State University. She sent her son uh, to Mississippi Valley. And my mother uh, uh, had me when she was a sophomore at 19. And my father and my mother decided to go to grad school a few months later. And they went to uh, Wisconsin. And then my mom decides uh, five years after that to come back to Mississippi and teach at Jackson State University. Um, all the while, my grandmother's still living in Scott County in the same house that, um, they, grew, that um, they grew up in. So, you know, my great great grandparents were um, born in Scott County. My grandmother uh, decides to stay in Mississippi. And then that's on that side of the family. That's that's sort of why I'm 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 a Mississippian, and it's um, partially why I love Mississippi so much. And I have like this strange uh, relationship with it. Whenever I feel like it's time to leave, I I I'll often feel like I'm running away, and I often feel like if my grandmother didn't run away, then I shouldn't run away. But yeah, she was born in Scott County, lives in Scott County right now at 92 years old. Um, and you could not, <laughs> you couldn't drag her out of Scout County right now. She's about 85 pounds. She loves, she loves that place because she worked that land from the, from her first memories to her last. And, uh, she feels like it is just as much hers as anybody else's. And that's really why she did not leave. I mean, it really is interesting how you, both of your stories have, um, themes of leaving, and staying and how going to pursue education, what choices, you know, your ancestors made about how to re-engage 
um, and especially the hold of the land. And, you know, mm-hmm. I have a family that's from here as well, and we came back from D.C. actually, Ralph, and that oh, mm. that pull of the of the land and the soil and ancestral land is really pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, what effect, so KSA, this time I'll start with you, what effect has your location had on your writing? What effect has Mississippi had on the way, mm. on your art practice? Um, I mean, if, if indebtedness and, and, and duty are an effect, I, I think that, that that's the effect that it's had on it. You know, my grandmother and my grandmother's porch were really out, outside of like friendships and, and, and music, like my holy places. Um, and so when I decided in high school that I maybe wanted to really take this writing thing seriously, I, I felt a strange sort of indebtedness to my grandmother. And for me, my grandmother was Mississippi. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, I, I had to read a lot because my mother was a teacher and blah, blah, blah. So I, I, I and she did a lot of work in political science. So I understood like the some of the political dimensions of the state. But I never I never thought about leaving the state. You know, I got kicked out of school and other things happened. And then I felt like my, my mother told me I had to leave. But. I think what happens when you have this sort of indebtedness that I had is that like the idea of leaving Mississippi um, as an 18 year old, 17 year old, it, it wasn't an idea at all. You know what I mean? Like I wanted to play basketball. I want to play football. So I went to the school that, that, that uh, recruited me locally to do it, um, which was Millsaps College. Um, and and when, I, when I got kicked out of Millsaps, um, really for well, ultimately for taking a book out of the library and bringing it back, but for other reasons, um, I still didn't want to leave. So I went to Jackson State, and then some of the stuff that was happening at Millsaps kept on happening. But again, it was just this. Inde- I just did not. I just could not see ceding this state to folks who did not want us to be there. Um, and and then when I left in 1995, I mean, you know, I went, I went to Oberlin College, um, and I I just from the moment I got to Oberlin College, I just kept on kind of plotting, plotting my way back. And I knew, though, at that point that I couldn't come back like without, you know, um, I, I didn't even know I write books at the time, but I knew I had to come back with some semblance of, you know, like Baldwin calls it a handle or, you know, some people would call it power. Some people might call it money. I don't know. But I, I was going to come back. But I just knew I couldn't come back empty handed because I'd seen what Mississippi did to folks who came back empty-handed but yeah it's, it was it's all indebtedness to my grandmother and this belief that like this the world the state um was as much ours as it was anybody else's and i think that's the important i think i think it's important to, to distinguish the state being ours as much as it was anyone else's from the state being ours do you know what i mean my grandmother was one who had this radical understanding of sharing and so when she said free to land i think she meant something different than what some other folks meant so yeah, that indebtedness is is why. Um, I mean, it's why I write how I write, and ultimately why I came back to Mississippi. Yeah, I think there's a whole nother conversation in the in the in what you said around the mythology around free the land. Right. But <laughs> we right. could talk about that for hours. But, right. Um, Ralph, how about you? What effect has um, this special place of Mississippi had on your writing? I know that's the center of a lot of the work that you do. It is the center of the work that I do, but uh, I have to say that as my college friend Steve Yarbrough told me recently, <laughs> he said, you're the least likely person 
that I thought would be have that label Mississippi writer. Mm. Because I, when I left and I saw Mississippi in my rearview mirror on my way to Ann Arbor, Michigan in 1978, I said I wasn't coming back. Mm-hmm. So um, my sad behind is back in Mississippi, but I'm kind of going back and forth. And I think for me, um, coming back in late middle age uh, had a tremendous impact on me. I, I tell people that when I found myself jobless at 58, Mississippi opened the door for me. Mm-hmm. I had my roommate. And that is a kind of a sense of indebtedness that I have. But I guess going mm-hmm. back to um, you know that staying away, what really drew me back in was writing about the Sovereignty Commission, writing about my family's mm-hmm. connection with that. Uh, when those files were opened up in 1999, I believe. So that location has had an impact on me. But when I came back to Mississippi to write Evers a long time, I had the idea of writing more of a narrative history of the Sovereignty Commission. I didn't realize it was going to become personal. Mm-hmm. And it became very personal. And what I've come to realize, particularly since I've been back, is once you leave a place, and I, I wonder, Casey, if you feel this too, and you're coming back and you're writing about it, you're observing it, you have this permanent sense of exile. Mm-hmm. And that sense of exile makes you look at the place differently than mm-hmm. if people, for those who stayed. And, and I often use that my sense of exile as a way of beginning conversations about things that I'm, I'm working on as I'm, as I'm writing. It's the way that I kind of approach interviewing subjects. Uh, I even change the tone of my voice when I'm interviewing someone in Mississippi. I mean, I, I, you know, wipe the map of Mississippi from my tongue intentionally. Uh, but now in, in middle age, I had to reclaim part of that. That was a part of myself. So Mississippi is a part of me. And I think that I, it took me a long time to realize how much it was a part of me. And you can't really... Um, leave behind a part of yourself, you have to go back and reclaim it. So I think for me, the effect location has had on me, it's a lot like cases. It's reclaiming this Mm -hmm. and saying that it's just as much mine as it is someone, as as a white person. I mean, that's what, so what my growing up in Mississippi, going to Ole Miss in the 70s, everyone always made me feel as if that place was not totally mine. Mm. And I think coming back is my way of reclaiming that and also saying to others who are coming in and have that same feeling when they come into the University of Mississippi saying, look, this is, part, this is yours too. Mm-hmm. And don't let anybody tell you any differently or take that from you. So that's really, for me, what location is done. It's a reclaiming. That's beautiful, Ralph. Um, and, and, it, and what I love about it is that it opens the possibility of, of 
so much overlap in our Mississippi stories, but also so much divergence, right? Because, you know, growing up in central Mississippi, you know, growing, I grew up in Jackson and my grandmother lived in Forest, which is a, you know, a poultry town um, in Scott County, Mississippi, in Scott County. Like I, 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 I'd never, I'd never been to Oxford like my entire life. You know, the first time I went to Oxford, Mississippi, um, I was on book tour. So it must've been 2000, maybe 14, maybe 13 or 14. Um, and I, you know, and I was on book tour all across the country, driving my car all across the country. Cause I didn't like to, I didn't like to fly. And I, you know, I went everywhere. And, and I always say this, like Oxford was the only place in the country that my grandmother and my mother said, I want you home before the street lights come on. Now, they hadn't told me that since I was probably about 14 or 15 in Jackson, or maybe even younger than that. Um, and, 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 and again, as someone now who lived in Oxford for six years, like the, the lore and the f- um, uh, fear that I think my mother and my grandmother had for that university but also that town was so real that they said you know kids say uh and you better not try to stay in a hotel in oxford so when i when i did my book reading in oxford my first time i had to stay in baseball because i promised my grandmom and and, and and now that i lived in oxford for a while i'm just like that's wow that's that that's that is wild that that is where they thought i would be the safest do you know what i'm saying and so so Go ahead, go ahead. Well, I know. I, well, you remind me of something that my mother always said every time she came on the campus of the University of Mississippi. This is when you could drive around University Circle. And we would drive through there and she would say, I can't look at those steps without right. seeing blood coming down. them." That's it. That's it. So for my grandmother, um, Oxford and Ole Miss, there, was, there is no difference. And they and they both were sites of where white white folks killed white folks. <laughs> Because they wanted black folks not to go to school there, right? Like that—that's where that's where my grandmother still thinks I work. My grandmother has to mention that, like you know, and my mother, you know, who grew up in Jackson State, and you know the history of Jackson State University and the kids that they would send to go to law school there. Like it's a deep, deep, complicated history that I hope sometime, someday, somebody writes about um, because it it is it is is a complicated, deep, painful, and ultimately I would say beautiful history. So. Coming back to Mississippi and coming back to Oxford were two different things, you know. So I would talk to my friends like, "Yeah, I'm going home," but in reality, I was coming to a place like I didn't know. I mean, Oxford was as far from Jackson as Poughkeepsie, New York was, you know. And but I ha- but I had to act as if like it was, you know, because I, I came back initially. You know, I'm coming back with friends and my partner, and I'm like, you know, this is. The, but I'm like. You know, I'm trying to act like I know the place, but I, I did not know the place, you know. I, and I remember the first day we got there, two things happened. One, there was this huge Confederate funeral procession for one of the black uh, Confederates in town. Um, I forgot his name. Hervey. I think his name, last name was Hervey or something. And, 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 you know, like I'm driving and trying to find the post office and I run up on this huge Confederate procession. And then there's this one black woman who was the partner of this black man who died a few days ago in a uh, in a car accident. And then I go to the square because um, I did. I just we, we didn't know where the, where the post office was. And then I asked somebody and then they're like this white woman. And she said, yeah, come on, follow me. But that that's the that's the paradox of Mississippi. You know what I mean? Like there's this white woman in a Prius 
that had a Confederate flag on the emblem, right, on the back. And she says to my big black ass, follow me. To come, follow me, like come on, I'll take you to the post office. Um, and 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 I and I can and I can just say, all my experiences in Central Mississippi, nothing like that ever ever happened. I I I've never seen a Confederate flag like as big as the street, and the idea of a black person being honored like bodies Confederates. So I came back home. And in some way, I found a part of home that I never knew was home, for better or worse. So we both grew up in South Mississippi, South and Central Mississippi. Right. Those are places that are out, exist outside of that Southern myth. A lot of those towns are founded post Civil War. Yes. So there's a there's a different history. There's not the courthouse square. There's not this this kind of triumvirate of you know kind of grief <laughs> despair yeah, yeah. And tradition <laughs> it's not there it's not it's not and, and you know what you know one of the things Ralph that that initially confused me and and then started to piss me off was that when talking to people in oh in Oxford you know I always say that I've never met people more proud of their town than people who live in Oxford Mississippi and people who live in Brooklyn Right. Like 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 those folks are sure that they are in like like paradise. Right. And and they and most and a lot of them are for what they want. But one of the things that that really confused me about living in Oxford was that people in Oxford were so sure that they were the progressive bastion of Mississippi. Now, to, to think and feel that you have to completely erase black people and black people's spaces from the map because there, there's no political like litmus test where Oxford is more progressive than Jackson. You know what I mean? Like, like, like there's, there's, you, you can't like where do, do they vote more left? No. Like do, do queer people, do queer people happen to, to like, you know, I, I know a lot of black queer folks from the, from the rural, rural places who came to Jackson in the eighties, you know, because they found some more safety. So, I always just was really confused when people and I get it like, yeah, you're comparing Oxford to maybe some other white town, but like black people get to be progressive, too. But I just I think they just call it being black. Do you know what I'm saying? And 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 and, and then when I told people I was from Jackson, they treat me the same way. I assume they would treat somebody who said they were from Afghanistan, which is like, <gasps> like, how, how did you get How'd you get here? You know, and and I saw them do the same thing to people from Memphis. And so for me, all of that made me feel like I'm in my state and I'm glad to be experiencing this. But this is this is something I've never even imagined. And I have a big old imagination, but I, I you know, but I didn't imagine it. And, and, and I'm not I'm not saying that regretfully either. I'm glad I got to experience it. But 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 the idea of of living in a Mississippi that is that feels diametrically opposed to the Mississippi you grew up in for a writer, I think is, is really rich, like really, really rich. Yeah. I, I have to, I have to agree with you in that, that idea that, that Oxford stands apart. And I think grasping that so strongly often keeps its residents from seeing what's right. wrong with it. Right. Um, yes, indeed. Because you're, you're, you're kind of buying into your own mythology. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is interesting how that how there is this story, or there's this. I call it the um, Oxfordian bubble <laughs> that's created um, in the mythology around it. Hi. I'm Ryan Dennis, Chief Curator and Artistic Director of the Center for Art and Public Exchange at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This exhibition is meant to share stories that have yet to be shared about the Great Migration and its impact on our lives today. I sincerely hope this podcast and your personal drive will guide you to come by the museum to visit this exhibition, which is on view through September 11th. For more information, please visit our website at www.msmuseumart.org. See you in the galleries. I guess my next question for both of you all, thanks for that wonderful conversation and exchange you just had. Um, how important is research and describe your practice when you're, when you're writing? Ralph, I'll start with you. Well, I, you know, research is a, is a big part of my writing. I'm a nonfiction writer, and I tell people, say, well, why are you a nonfiction writer? And I say, I'm just bad at making shit up. So, <laughs> and it's that I, 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 like, um, I like doing research to kind of weave detail into the story. Um, you know, right now in writing about the Delta, I kind of run across a, an interesting little tidbit in my story and this kind of relates to the idea of migration it's like well why in the world were there all these black men from tuskegee who end up in the delta in the 40s and 50s and i started researching that and learned about you know the role of tuskegee in the um the development of the extension service for black extension workers in the south as well as Tuskegee's role in the 1927 flood in the Mississippi Mm. Delta, that Robert Moton worked with Herbert Hoover um, in doing some relief for victims of the flood, black victims of the flood. And one of the things that Herbert Hoover promised um, Moton was that they would buy up land from failed farms to subdivide for black sharecroppers. Herbert Hoover reneges on that promise. But who does that is the resettlement administration during the Roosevelt administration, who Moton campaigns for. And that's the town of Milestone, which is where my father ends up in 1949. So it's kind of there's, so realizing there is this role of history that led to my father and so many of his Tuskegee colleagues ending up in Holmes County, Mississippi in 1949. Uh, uh. So, I mean, for me, that's those, it's, it's those details of the story where you can kind of see the layers of the narrative rather than just, well, you know, this, the thing that my father would always say, why did you come to Mississippi? He said, opportunity. And uh, I realized, uh. well, there was opportunity, but it's also much more complicated. Mm-hmm. And it also kind of counteracts the narrative that's present um, in the United States about the the mythology built around the state of Mississippi. I mean, there is lots of power in knowing that kind of detailed, nuanced history you just Absolutely. described. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it it it, it does, and it, and it what it has made me begin to see as I you know begin to write about the Delta. I think we 
One of the things we don't think about the Mississippi Delta is as a radical space. Right. And that and, and the Mississippi Delta, I'm learning, has always had these elements of a radical space. And we I think we ignore that part of the Delta story. Yes. And then kind of getting into this now, I'm realizing I've got to always keep that idea of I mean, you know, the Delta as a radical space. Oh, you just made me pull my pen out, Ralph. I just wrote that down. Yeah. <laughs> like, that yes. was, yeah. Just look at the history of, you know, you've you've got, you know, Milestone, the role of Milestone and um, the pe- those those men, former sharecroppers who ended up owning land, right. become voters. They're the first to register to vote in Holmes County. Right. And then you go over to Providence Farm, which uh, was, you know, established by... Reinhold Niebuhr, a you know, group of radical Protestant, theolo- white Protestant theologians, and how they're trying to create this new integrated space there, but then they get run out um, as well. Um, think about Fannie Lou Hamer and her farm cooperative mm-hmm. efforts. Mm-hmm. There's all of this radical activity that's going on in the Delta, but then there's also a way that the white power structure of the state finds a way to to push that radical change down. And therein lies the story. You know, when I when I go back and I look at the establishment of Milestone, one of the things I learn is that there were going to be more milestones. There were going to be more resettled black resettlement communities in Mississippi. But yes. Mississippi's politicians kept that from happening because they knew if you had if more black people owned more land in the Delta that was going to have an effect on white economic power. And that's, so for me, research, those are all the things that research does for me in in kind of telling a story. Um, And it informs the way that I begin to think about a place that I visited a lot as a kid and have a lot of fond memories of and have somewhat romanticized. And this, this keeps me from from looking only at the mythology. I mean, I kind of can bring in the memory of, of the Delta, but I also can bring in, well, there's, this is what I was seeing, but there's, the story goes far beyond what I was just seeing. I feel that. I feel that. You know, for me, yeah. Yeah, for me, you know, I feel like it's a, it's a benefit and a burden, and I'm going to say much more benefit to be the son of a researcher. You know what I mean? My, my mother is, is a political scientist, wanted to be a political scientist as soon as she stepped foot um, on Jackson State's campus. Um, so so as a young person, you know, she's taking me uh, to the Delta. She's taking me to the archive. She's taking me, you know, as she's, you know, doing what she's doing with, with Robert, Robert Clark's campaign and you know, all these other black elected officials. Like, I'm right there. But as far as our family, one of the benefits is that my mother did a lot of the genealogy and a lot of the research um, that I was there for while she was writing. But, you know, a lot of times because your parents are your parents, you just kind of don't really invest in what they're doing, even if it is like sort of like, uh, you know, exploring the texture of how you got here. And, and so one of the things that I learned late in life from my mother um, 
And this speaks to, to what Ralph is saying about like the, 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 the radical cubby holes of Mississippiness that we do not explore or those of us who have pants don't write about enough is, you know, my my grandmother, while, you know, while working land from the time she's six or seven years old, it, you know, is also raised by someone named Mama Rose who who has some land, right? Like had a, a swath of land in Scott County, had some land in Newton. And so, you know, and my grandmother, you know, was also very tightly connected to the church. So when my grandmother's 18 years old, she, because she'd done so much work for the church and because Mama Lara had given her like this swath of land, right? Like maybe an acre or two, like the church builds a house for my grandmother and my grandmother helps build a house herself um, on, you know, the same place where my grandmother's house is right now. So like this is a a, 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 a black woman who is not partnered who has her own home at 18 or 19 years old. Like that's a big deal on on a piece of land that is hers, that she goes on to make it into the most lush garden in the entire county. Like it's like, and I come from black women who do not, would not remotely call themselves feminists because they think that white women have taken that word and made it into something horrible. But that is in some way, one of the most feminist or womanist acts that I can ever imagine, right? Like being a landowner, cultivating that land and sharing the fruits of that land. Like that is part of my lineage that I would not have known <clears throat> had my mother not done research. Now, the, the burden of it is that the kind of research that my mother does, which is, you know, political, ethnographic, interviewing tons of families in Sunflower County, tons of families in Scott County, um, tons of indigenous families um, all throughout Mississippi, is that the expectation was that I was going to do similar work. And 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 what I'm and, and, and what I come at my mama with is like, you know, like we don't need to do the same work. But I, I would like to go kind of like into the folds of the stories that, you know, you don't get to tell or you don't choose to tell. And so that's why I feel like my work has a bit more or a bit less like like researchiness about it, though, for a book like Heavy, you know, I, you it, it's it's a reported memoir that you make feel like it's not a reported memoir. You know, I had to go out and interview lots and lots and lots and lots of people. How did I learn to interview? Partially from college, but also partially from watching my mama interview all these people. But I didn't want to make that kind of book. You know what I'm saying? I, didn't, I wanted to actually make a book that felt like a novel that was nonfiction. Uh, well, my mother, on the other hand, is like, yes, we have all these novelistic ideas in, in our family and in this region, and I want to make these novelistic ideas feel more academically rigorous and researched. So I'm, I, I have a benefit in coming from a researcher, um, but I also sometimes feel like I felt like the burden was that I was supposed to imitate that research instead of taking it in a different direction. So what role do you think, um, and both of you are kind of in different writing genres, but ha what role do you think telling the often unhidden or unknown stories that both of you all kind of highlight, what does that have to contribute to having what I call honest, courageous conversations about the state of race and equity in the United States? I mean... I don't. I don't know. Ralph, Ralph, I mean, I. I. I think that is the role. I. I don't know. I mean, that. That to me, that role is the work. In it should be the work. I think in all places, but particularly in places where secrets have been systemically created. Right. Like. Like there's so many secrets in our and in, in my family that have to do 
you know, with my family's pushback, violent, often pushback against police officers. You know what I mean? Um, like, I don't come from a family of people who watched white police officers do terrible things to our family. Like, I come from a family of people who watch white police officers do terrible things and they organized and got those white officers back. You know, like one day I can tell that story. <laughs> a few more people are going to have to die before I tell it honestly. But but it is a story that I'm going to tell. And but 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 this is this is where I think skill and will are important. Right. Like, you don't you can't just tell that story like you have to one will yourself to tell a story that involves, you know, guns, police and black people shooting back. But you also have to skill your way into that because it's not simply that it's not simply that. Oh, for allegedly, like, you know, somebody in my family you know, shot a cop for who, who raped my grandmother. It's, it's that, that same gun allegedly that was used to shoot a cop who, who, who raped my grandmother might've been used to actually harm the child that my grandmother had from, from, from a police officer, allegedly. Do you know what I'm saying? And so like that, those are, those are willful stories, but they're also skillful. Like you have to have a particular kind of, uh, Skill and I don't. I mean, I mean, I'm sure skill is somehow innate, but also you just it's just got you got to practice a lot. So there's so but I always feel I don't know if you feel this way, Ralph. Is that I feel like Mississippi stories and maybe everywhere stories, but Mississippi stories like rely on and necessitate like a kind of skill that you know. Yeah, we find maybe some other places in the country, but you gotta be super skillful to pull it off, man. You you, you I mean you 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 sort of have to. I think the heavier the burden, the heavier the secret, the more skill one has to have to pull it off in ways that feel lush. And I think that is partially why as Ralph has written so incredibly about Mississippi writers, um, I do think one thing that distinguishes us beyond our experiences is actually like the skill necessary to mine these experiences. But I think that gets lost in public conversations about Mississippi writers. Yeah, I mean, I have to agree with you, Casey, is that it's, I always say that it's in those silences where we find our best yes. stories. Yes. But sometimes you have to probe those silences, and then, and then you also have to. Um, and this is where where those silences are, where no one will talk. Then sometimes you have to try to push beyond that to imagine and write into that silence. Um, you know, there's. I often tell people there's when I'm doing work in the archive. There's the silence of the archive. Uh-huh. And very often I'm having to write into that silence and imagine, well, why is there nothing there on this? And there may be several reasons, but I want to imagine what those were. And and that's why thinking about those silence stories, it can lead to honest conversations, but I also have a great fear right now as so many of us are writing into these silences that there's this push now to keep those things silent. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and yeah. that's and and that really concerns me that yes. as we you know as someone who is always probing those silences, there are people in government right now who want to essentially silence Right. What it is that I'm I'm doing, what I what it is that I'm exploring. That is that going to stop me? No. But mm. it does it does give me concern about how we can have those honest conversations. 
because that's what I'm trying to do. You know, someone said to me once, "Why are you always bringing this stuff up from from the past?" You know, and and I said, "Well, because we, you know, these are things we have to talk about." And it's not that I'm trying to stir anything up. It's that I want there to be clarity, right? And clarity to me is is important. And when people say, "What's you know, what do you see as your role as a writer?" So it's being a clarifying force about mm. Mississippi. That's uh-huh. what I'm. That's what I'm trying to do. Do I always succeed? No, but it's what I'm. It's what I'm always working to. And, and can I just add to that? Like one of the things that I really love about what you just said and what you do in your work, Ralph, is that you know th- there's an acknowledgement that there are political forces that at once want us to live in this particular kind of past that they've mythologized, but then somehow attempt to discipline us for mining the past that they that they that they don't want us to leave, right? And and, and so so we all know, like you know, there's a past where my grandmother could not vote. There's a there's a present where politicians in our state are are trying to disenfranchise black people from voting. So you can't at once say, I want y'all to pretty much live pre-63 and then say to Ralph, why are you always talking about that old shit? Like the question is, why why are you insisting that we live like why does every political move from from some politicians in our state who have lots of power why is it always a regressive move like we don't we don't see much like innovation from 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 our governor we don't see much innovation from from many parts of the right what you see is a plea that yesterday was better than today okay let's say yesterday was better than today well then you can't get mad at the writers for mining yesterday because that's where you choose to live you see what I'm saying? We just want to we just want to look at that yesterday through a different set of eyes um, to, to, to ultimately put a different kind of political force on you all to change this this present for the future of our children, all of our Mississippi children. But I just want to say, I, I think what you said made me see it clearly. Yeah, you can't punish people for going back when you you systemically want to put them backwards with all, every pu- piece of public policy that you push forward. Yeah, I mean that's I mean that's that's insane. It's that, <laughs> that, we're, that we're that we're that we're doing that and that and that case we have that we have to have this conversation in the 21st century. Yeah. And yeah. that's where I get angry. Yeah, <laughs> and it just and yeah. it and it and I think that's why I push back against that um, mm-hmm. so much. Particularly as as I said, I'm writing about the Mississippi Delta right now, and I'm trying to write about it as honestly as I can. And also, there's a lot there that is silenced, and where you know, starting out where my family lived in Holmes County, there's a lot that was silenced. And trying to bring that out into the open again, where we can talk about it, uh, rather than keeping it pushed under the rug where everybody else thinks it might belong, but it doesn't belong there. Yeah, I, and it also sounds like, just from both of you all's kind of conversation, that the powers that be or people often fear like this 
this radical reimagination of what's possible. And I think if you have solid grounding in our history, which both of you do in very different ways, then you it kind of unlocks that that potential and you can figure out what what does this world look like in in a liberatory sense and mm-hmm. i know kiese you mentioned a lot about liberation in some of your interviews that you've had and what if that's the what if that's the common goal you right. know what <laughs> if what right i mean and 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 my question is 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 has changed in the last few years it's like what if we loved our children enough to want liberation as a as a, as a probability for them, and 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 I and I promise you, I mean children of every race, every gender, every class. Like, what if we wanted all of our children in this in, in Mississippi to have equal access to to healthy choices, um, to second chances, uh, to clean water? Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like that, that could be a goal that we wanted. And, and, and as, as a state that professes to be so Christian, that would be a goal that you think that this particular kind of dude they call Jesus would want. Right. So, 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 so it's, I think, I think, I think one of the crazy making things about our state is that we hoist up this dude named Jesus, the same person my grandmama hoisted up, hoisted up to believe and my grandmama hoisted that person up to believe in a kind of radical liberation. And for her radical liberation was that black people could actually have access to the same kinds of choices that white folk had access to. Right. That for my grandmama was radical. That sadly still is radical in 2022 and i just don't see how people who purport to love mississippi can want anything else but what you find is people who claim to love mississippi want to want to want to want to put fannie lou hamer's voice down how do you love mississippi and and take one of the best of us ever created and be like no we don't need to uh uh you know uh, honor this person at all like how do you take look at what mecca evers did Right, Mega Evers was actually trying to make life better for black folk and for white folk, and 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 they murdered him for it. So, I think I think the beautiful part about some of what we what we do in Mississippi is that we make it so clear, and the hard part about it is that we make it so clear. You know what I mean? It's 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 to me it's just always paradoxical. Yeah, it's the both and always. So, who are your target audience? So, Ralph, I'll start with you. Who are you writing for when you? Who are you thinking about? I'm always thinking about not only about Southerners, but particularly people. I I see myself writing for a national audience. And that's one of the the challenges in writing about Mississippi is I want people to begin to see how much of the South is in the rest of this country. Ah. And that, I mean, I, you know, Imani Perry does that so brilliantly in her most recent book. Mm-hmm. And it has been such an inspiration to me in thinking about how I want to write about Mississippi is that I want people to begin to see what Mississippi, how much of Mississippi is elsewhere. You know, I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts right now. And one of the things I was taken by as soon as I got here is that there are all these statues around. And I realized mm. I'm in the land of the abolitionist. There's a different mm. story that people are trying to, to tell here. But is that story any different than the lost cause? And the answer is no, it's not. There is a way that what they're saying is that we want, but then there are all these 
these people, you know, these black people from the regiments here who marched down uh, Commonwealth Avenue going off to war, they're, they're not really included in a lot of these soldiers and sailors monuments that they have across Massachusetts. And that idea of exclusion, it's like that exclusion that you like to put on the South, it exists in the North. We right. set up the South as an other. And I guess if one thing I'm trying to do is I'm trying to keep people from thinking about the South as other. That it is, that it's, there's so much about the South that is American. There's a lot that's unique to the place, that's unique to the culture of the South. But a lot of that culture has migrated across this country. So I'm trying to get um, get people to see, readers, I hope, to see how much of the South is in the rest of this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know our executive director, Betsy Bradley, often says um, Mississippi's story is America's story. So, mm-hmm. yeah, thank you for doing that work. And Kiese, how about you? Who are you writing for? Yes, that's uh, always a... Um it's always a complicated question to me because I feel like audiences are so complex. And, 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 you know, if you would ask me this three years ago, I would have said, I'm writing for Mississippians, central Mississippians, particularly. Um, so, and really like the young person in all of us, central Mississippians who did not see themselves written to or, um, or about, you know, and that, and that still is sort of the front row of my audience. But, you know, I wrote this book called Heavy and it, and then it got translated into like 14 different languages. So I get so I get people, you know, people who speak Portuguese and Italian and French talking to me about Mississippi. And it it makes me understand the importance of what Ralph just said about not just and the importance of us always talking to our people locally while being hyper aware of an international eye, right? Not just a national eye, but an international eye. And it, and it's something that like, I think the best of our people have often used for political means. So I'm always gonna try to write to that young person I was, uh, who, who was fiending to find uh, some book that saw me fully. I'm always gonna be trying to write to my grandma. I'm always gonna be trying to write to the greats, right? I'm trying to write to, I'm trying to write to write. I'm trying to write to Faulkner. I'm trying to write to wealthy. Right. I'm trying to write to Tret the way I'm definitely trying to write to Jasmine. I'm trying to write to Ralph. And I am wholly aware that there's an international audience out here also who can help put pressure on these same institutions, institutions that we're talking about to make life better. So it's not it's not for me. It's not purely one or the other. It's all. But the Mississippi folks get the front row. Um, I just have. Yeah. Sometimes I worry about like being like a native informant. But, you know, I think that I, I think that. But I did. I think that's part of writing, though. I actually think I actually think that is what writing, sadly, partially is. You know. Well, Casey, what I have to say is that what I really admire about your work is that it's unapologetically black. Right. And it's like, and, and, you, and, and you'll say, okay, white folks, if you want to go along on this trip with me, you're welcome to go along. But you got you, you know, I'm not going to be writing to you. And no. that is something that Richard Wright didn't have the luxury of doing. That's the that's the truth. That is the truth. And and I think that that's something that I recognize that that, you know, thinking about one of our our ancestors who didn't have that freedom that now we have. Yes. Yes. 
Ralph, you just picked the picked my last question. <laughs> um, so, since you already mentioned what you admired about Kiese's work, um, and now I'm, I didn't tell exact truth. It's my next to last question, Kiese. What do you admire about Ralph's work? Okay, this is this is this. I'm gonna try to be short because I could go on and on. I feel like Ralph and I are like we started to have this conversation before Ralph somewhere. I don't remember where we were, but. That generation, it's not even, gen- I don't even know if we're separated by generation, but. Well, your grandma, your grandmother is, is, is my, this was born in the same year as my mother. Okay. Well, maybe we, okay. Well, okay. So maybe we are, maybe we are separated. Like, but, but, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to say something and Ralph, you can, you can, you can um, tell me I'm wrong. I am always taken by what appears to be that generation right above me who comports themselves you know walks with a different kind of comportment um um listens with a kind of different comportment speaks with a kind of different comportment but has i'm just gonna use this word more passion soul and anger than my generation could even dream of having and when i and when i read ralph's books and when i read ralph's work I don't think you get Ralph unless you understand that with every elegant stroke of the keyboard, there is some anger in that shit, fam. Like you, you do not. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to tell Ralph who Ralph is, but what I love about what Ralph does is he shows me a different way of how to, how to write through, um, the anger. Of of having to be twice as good to get you know half as much, like like but 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 Ralph does it in a way that 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 can disarm. But for those of us who can read, it's right there, it's right there. Like that person who you think has their shirt tucked in, who you can see in a crowd and be like, oh blah blah blah. That that that's the Joker right there, who you best not mess with because they know they know what you know because you've talked to them. They know what we know, and and best of all, they've had to master the art of writing to make it. Just to I'm just saying as far as writers, just to make it right. Nothing is given to that generation of writers. Not I mean again, I'm not trying to speak for Ralph, but like Ralph, Ralph ain't giving shit. Like you got to go out and make a way. So. Like Ralph knows the University of Mississippi, like, and I didn't know that shit till I'm like 40 years old. You can't, you can't know the University of Mississippi and 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 be like, oh, this nice kind of guy. That you can, yeah, you can be that on the surface, but we know percolating, but beyond that is something else. What I love in Ralph's writing is that if you read, and what Ralph's writing does is it makes you reread. You see that again, it is okay to be angry, and it is okay to manifest that anger in a different way. But it is, but that anger must come with healthy doses of love, or it's not worth anything. And I find that most in Ralph's writing than, than, than any other Mississippi writer. For Casey, for, for me, is that I admire that you can give voice to that anger in a way that I, I can't. Mm-hmm. And, and because of that generational difference, because I was, I was brought up during that generation where I, my father always told me, he said, nobody listens to an angry black man. Right, right. So it was, so that's kind of been you know, put into me. And then as, as my daughter would say, I said, you know, I've got all this Booker T shit going on from it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's like, I've, you know, I've got all this, this stuff going on, but then 
I'm also, well, how do I get that out there? And how do I get people to, to pay attention to it? And it's, it's, it is a lot of, it's cultural conditioning is what it yeah. is. Yeah. Um, but I admire that you feel a lot freer to express that in ways that, that I can't. And that's what I really admire about your work. Because, but, but, but again, because, and 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 I actually like I don't know that that's the way I, one should express it, but but I know that I'm able to express it partially because of the work that that, that you do. Do you know what I mean? Like I I think that uh, I mean there's no doubt about that. Like I believe in continuums. I believe in lineages, and the older I get, the more. I realize I'm gonna have to start doing away with the hoodies and the hats and start, you know what I mean? Like, you know, because I'm I'm, I'm sitting in different rooms and and you know dressing like your uncle who's in between jobs is cool. Like in your in your in your in your, in your thirties, but you know you start getting closer to fifty and like there's a different expectation. And so I'm what I'm saying is like I think Ralph sets a model for the kind of um, you know grown grown writer man that I that I want to be. And it, and I don't think you sacrifice. I don't think you sacrifice. Um, um, precision, and I definitely don't think you sacrifice that fire that's underneath all of our stuff. You don't. Actually, I know you don't sacrifice it. Well, thank um, you, Chase. So, yeah, it means a yeah. lot. Yeah. So, guess for my thank you both for the love fest. That was <laughs> that was great. Um, and I hope you all heard new things from each other, even though um, in your previous interviews. So you all can take that with you as a gift from the Mississippi Museum of Art. Uh, so my last question for you both is, what holds you to Mississippi? Ooh, uh, for me, it's it's it's, um, it's just too. I mean, home holds me to Mississippi. The fact that you know folks have wanted to run us out of Mississippi, those of us who who want to push back, and and my grandmother, my grandmama didn't run, um, so. So I just feel like I owe her so much. Uh, the question, though, is like, I, I think I'm understanding now that you can give to Mississippi without necessarily living the same life your grandmother lived in Mississippi. Right. Like, I don't have like part of me is like, I'm going to live in Scott County. And like, yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to build a house in Scott County, but. I'm not going to be living in that house for no 12, 12 months. Like, I just can't do it. Like, I love my state, man, but I I'm, I, I got to move a little bit. You know what I'm saying? I, I have one stamp in my passport. I need to get I need to I need to get up out of here a little bit. But it's my grandmother who keeps me and my mother who keep me connected to the state. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it is this connection to to home. I mean, I, I feel at home when I'm in, in D.C., but I also feel at home in Mississippi. And I often tell people mm-hmm. that a lot of my writing is about a search for home and that you don't search for home unless you're lost. And so in some ways, it's what keeps you Mississippi is keeping that connection to home and thinking about how... Um, there's someone else out there who's also having that search for home. And it may not be Mississippi. It may be somewhere else. And, you know, saying that to them, but that's what really pulls me to Mississippi. Is it, it keeps me invested in the mm. place, and it makes me feel more connected to the place that I grew up in call home. Thank you for joining us today. 
This limited series podcast is brought to you by the Mississippi Museum of Art in partnership with the Mississippi Arts Commission and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. In our next episode, I speak with chefs Naya Mayard and Enrica Williams. Learn more about the Mississippi Museum of Art and our upcoming exhibition of Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration at msmuseumart.org. We hope listeners realize the importance this historical phenomenon had and continues to have on the many cultural aspects of our country. Thank you again for tuning in.